Good afternoon, everyone that's dialing in. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, we're just going to wait 10, 15 seconds so that uh, we can see the attendees coming in. But while you're coming in, um, please just say hello on the chat line. Um, it'd be handy if you learn how to do that if you weren't sure before, because it's a great place as we go through this for you to post uh, questions, hold your offline discussions as we're going through the presentation or the discussion, um, and just make yourself known to everyone else. So that'd be absolutely fantastic. Um, when we do get to Q&A, and, and we'll begin allowing you to do Q&A throughout though, if you want to guarantee that at least your question is going to be looked at, uh, try and use the Q&A function in Zoom, uh, because obviously in the chat it can get quite busy. The Q&A is a little bit easier for me to actually go and handle and to, to manage. So without further ado, um, very warm welcome to Zaf, very warm welcome to Megan. Uh, we're going to kick off with Megan, and we're going to ask you for a little intro and to, to explain what the EOH Inspire series is all about. Thanks, Colin, and welcome to everyone for our second episode in the Inspire series. We're all living through particularly challenging times, um, and while we all remain committed to make our businesses successful and tackle the challenges around restarting our economy, it's also important that we find ways to bring inspiration into our own days. So part of what we're doing today is our IOKA Inspire series, and it's really aimed to be highly entertaining and insightful um, in terms of the speakers that we have got on board. Last week, we spoke to Charles Savage, the CEO and founder of Easy Equities, where he shared his experience in creating Africa's largest retail brokerage in six years and how he has built a purposeful organization. Today, Colin is going to be chatting to Zef, who is the CFO of CellC and is playing a pivotal role in designing and implementing the group's turnaround strategy. I think that is also something that is very close to our hearts in terms of EOH and the turnaround strategy that we're going through, um, sitting with inherited high levels of debt, how you manage that and repurpose and reposition your business for the future and how, while at the same time dealing with debt and also at the same time making sure you have a sustainable business and a future strategy for your business. So I think it's going to be a very entertaining one-hour call that we've got today with Zaf, um, and it's going to be greatly insightful. So thanks, Colin and Zaf, for joining us today. That's great. Thank you Thank very you. much, Megan. And uh, just before you go, hopefully at some point we could do uh, one of these sessions with you, because if we look at the journey that you've been steering EOA through along with Stephen, um, I think that's going to be equally fascinating. So whenever you're ready, we're, we're ready to, um, to host that one. I'm really looking forward to that. So right. in fact, Thanks. let's do that. Are you, uh, shall we do a date? Shall we go and commit to that at some point in the next few days? Yeah, we can definitely commit to that. Thanks, Colin. Awesome. Nothing like putting people on the spot on a live <laughs> broadcast, is there? Megan, thank you very well much. Well done, Colin. Thanks. <laughs> You're showing true purpose, Colin. <laughs> Let's now uh, switch over to uh, Zaf, Megan, and um, start with a quick intro. And I'm, I'm just referring to my notes here. Celsi launched 2001 for most of that period of time. I think it's fair to say really been struggling to generate profits. Uh, by March 2020, it's got 8.7 billion um, rands worth of debt, a shareholding structure with, you know, a majority 45% with Blue Label and Net One at 15%, where between them they've had to agree to write off about 7.5 billion rand. During that process, you know, 2018, Zafa, you're still the CFO for, you know, for McDonald's and having, I would have thought, a, a wonderful time there without some of the problems that you're walking into. 
I'm going to ask a question, but I'm just going to play a piece of music before I do, because it very much feels like you walked into this. If anyone can guess it who's listening, please put that in the chat. Okay, Mission Impossible. Surely a Mission Impossible. Let's start with why you actually decided to make the leap, um, because were you aware of all the problems that you were walking into? Uh, thanks, Colin, and hello, everyone. Um, thanks for having me. I don't know if that's Mission Impossible 9 or 10. I'm not sure, but it uh, seems like uh, some of the gigs that I get into are all Mission Impossible. I think you want to be outside your comfort zone. Um, you're not going to learn a lot if you're in a comfort zone. So I think personally for me, um, I wanted to be somewhere where it was uncomfortable. Uh, I had some experience with turnaround in the past, so it's what gets me up. And, and, you know, you and I talk a lot about Colin uh, purpose. And so I think for me, getting involved in uh, organizations that need turnarounds is, is what, I, what I like. You know, do, do I, did I know what I was getting to? Absolutely. I did my homework beforehand. Um, and yes, uh, I, I knew exactly what I was getting to and that's what I wanted. So, uh, and, and, you know, you don't do this on your own. There's a whole team of people that sits behind this uh, that helps with the turnaround. It's not just me. My CEO is probably the, the driver of it, and I just go along for the ride, I suppose. Was it actually worse when you started to get into the weeds than you'd originally expected? Uh, no, not at all. I mean, I, I read all of the, the, the research I'd asked around, um, you know, I, and I got good relationships with the banks. I spoke to a few of them. And they gave me the, the full rundown. And, you know, banks know this stuff uh, because they risk averse, right? Um, so, you know, I used my connections with the banks to, to get the proper background. Um, so I knew exactly what I was walking into and uh, knew exactly what needed to be done, you know, straight off the bat. Now, I played in, um, the intro of Mission Impossible, but of course, since you've joined, uh, things look like they've improved quite considerably. I mean, from a comparison of Jan to June last year and, and then the second half of the year, EBITDA doubled, you know, 1.7 billion. Profits started to come in, 705 million before impairments. And then I'm sure you're going to talk about some of the progress that's been made, you know, this year as well. Let's start digging into, you know, the approach and, and how you can actually do that turnaround because there's going to be lots of businesses, whether it's just the natural course of life or because of COVID-19, that are facing very significant problems now and really looking for all the help and ideas that they can get in terms of actually, you know, pushing through a major turnaround like this. And th this is obviously why we actually asked you uh, to come on, because to get your insights on the approach that you've taken, I think is invaluable. Yeah, so I, I think, um, you know, the word turnaround is used quite loosely. Um, I think every business is, is a turnaround. I think where that business sits on the continuum is, is important. So some, some businesses just need a mild turnaround, which is, you know, kicking the tires, making sure that you're relevant in, 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 in the industry that you operate in. Um, and that I would consider that most companies need to be in that space. And if you're not uh, at a strategic level, really looking at your business model and, and uh, you know, purpose, uh, as, as you always point out, um, then I think that you're not doing it properly because, you know, before you know it, somebody's going to creep up behind you and take your market share and, you know, you disappear. I mean, we, we all read the LinkedIn articles of all the companies that have ceased to exist in the last 20 years. So I think, you know, a mild turnaround is what all companies need to be in. Then, of course, you get, uh, you know, all the way through the continuum to the ones that are uh, distressed, 
which is really what Celsi is. Uh, when we joined, it was in a distressed position. Um, and, you know, part of that was that we had just way too much of debt. And we had a business model that wasn't suited to be able to repay that level of debt. Um, and what made it especially more difficult was that that debt was as a result of a recapitalization that was done in 2017. So you had a lot of people walking around with egg in their faces, and then they parachute me in to come and try and fix it. And the beauty of that is that um, you know the, the the expectations are quite low because you know, the previous management team it's just easy to blame them, frankly, um, because you walk in and you do what you got to do. Uh, one of the things that I made sure that I got done up front was to make sure that I had the board support in terms of what I needed to do um, because it was going to be tough. But ultimately, we did basic things um, and, and basic things matter in business. You know, everybody looks for this magic pull. There isn't one. It's hard graft. It's uh, a lot of doing proper things. But, um, and you've got to make tough decisions. You know, a, a lot of companies are in denial. Uh, about their position uh, and and what it what they need to to run their business. So, you know, management one hundred and one. Uh, that's what real turnaround is about. Were you ever nervous about your ability to go and and be positively influential in this? Such a very, I mean, it's a very different business to where you've come from before. Quite a complex business. I can imagine that some would walk into this and they'd feel almost overwhelmed by the number of decisions and choices and problems and, and trying to find ways to go and simplify and solve. Yeah, look, I think, um, you know, it's, it's easy to sit and, and focus on the problem, um, but that's not my job. My job is to focus on a solution, right? So um, just get on with it, frankly. Uh, I'm fortunate in that uh, I've had experience. Uh, I was the CFO at El Arines, uh, and, and uh, we put that into Business Rescue. Uh, African Bank was a 100% shareholder. They went into curatorship shortly after we went into business rescue. So I had a lot of the experience uh, and the scars of being in a distressed uh, business before. So this wasn't the first time that I walked in. And a lot of those learnings I brought with me uh, to, this, to this job. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy to ever be a CFO in a business rescue situation. It's, it's really, really tough. So I think, you know, yes, you, you have your lessons that you learned and, and you bring with you. But the Ellerines one was especially tough. And, and why that is the case is because of what happened subsequently. Um, and if you just bear with me, I'll give you the, the rundown. South Africa probably had at the time between about 750 too many furniture stores. And for all of you that drive around South Africa to all the dorps and the little towns in between, big cities there's probably way too many furniture stores on main street and everywhere you go there's a brad lowe's a joshua door a lewis uh ellerines a bears and they're all selling the exact same thing and it's effectively uh financial services masquerading as furniture stores and you know out of the big three which was jd group uh which was part of the steinoff stable um lewis uh, and ellerines one of us had to go because the structure of the industry just didn't make sense. We had a further issue in that our shareholder, uh, African Bank, uh, African Bank, the, the, the uh, holding company, you know, they're a bank. They couldn't use depositors' funds to fund retail business that was making losses. So, you know, all, all, you know in a normal uh, case like with JD, uh, they would have had Steinoff to be able to bail them out. We, we didn't have that. And... In fact, we almost did a deal with Steinoff uh, that went to the African Bank Board, and it was in the Maiberg report. Um, and they were going to buy 
Elorines for I think it was about one and a half billion rand. And funny enough, it was uh, African Bank would have had to pay one and a half billion rand uh, to a consortium led by Pepco Steinhoff uh, uh, to buy Elorines. So it was quite it was, would have been one better than the one rand one rand shoprite deal, right? But ultimately, one had to go. We only found out subsequently that had the deal gone through, we would have ended up in the, in the Steinhoff saga. So. You know, did we dodge a bullet? Yes. But at the end of the day, Elorine ceased to exist. And uh, yeah, it was, you know, those experiences were invaluable in terms of what I'm doing today with Chelsea. It's interesting. You said one of us had to go a couple of times there. What's your perspective on the overall telecoms market here in, in South Africa? Because with four big players and then, you know, rain coming on board and others looking to get into the market space, from my perspective, it almost feels like there's a slight overcapacity there. 100% correct. I mean, you know, and, and, and I talk often about um, industry, but um, in, in most developed markets, you have two big infrastructure providers and the rest are MVNOs. Uh, and that's typically the, the model that exists around the world. In South Africa, you've got four players and all of us are trying to build our own networks. And it's bizarre, really, because if you think about it this way, um, a highway from Johannesburg to Cape Town, uh, each one of us has our own highway. It's just bizarre, frankly. Yeah, you can justify you know two highways but four just doesn't make sense what we should have is one highway or two highways and each of us having our lanes um, and so we made a decision early on uh, to change our business model so this wasn't only a turnaround it was also a change in, in strategic operating model which was to say that we're not going to build our own radio access network so we'll still have our spectrum and our core but what we were looking to do was actually buy capacity of uh, two other networks that have, have the excess capacity. So we roam on, on Vodacom uh, on their 2G network, and we signed a deal to roam on MTN's network. They've got lots of capacity. Um, and we said, well, you know, rather than spending the CapEx, we'd rather spend the OPEX. So we had a CapEx for OPEX substitution, and it turned us from loss-making into profit-making. So that's the deal that we're currently betting down. I think that's very interesting when you move into a, a sort of variable cost model. We'll, we'll come back that, uh, to that in a minute. Can you just talk about what it means to be a, a virtual network operator for anyone there that's not aware of that term? So uh, funny enough, we've got 21 uh, MVNOs, which are virtual network operators. And effectively what happens is that the difference primarily between a telco, that's an MNO, and an MVNO is Spectrum. So we own Spectrum, Telcom own Spectrum, Rain own Spectrum, um, uh, as does Vodacom and MTN. And there's Spectrum at different levels. So depending on uh, which G you're talking about, and you know, for those of, of, of you in, in the audience that need to understand it, it's 2G would have been uh, the wavelength uh, between towers. So the, you would have had towers that are much further apart. So as you go through the Spectrum from 2G down to 5G, your towers get closer. Because what you want to be able to do, for example, in 5G, if you've got driverless cars, you cannot have any latency whatsoever. So your towers need to be really close together. And 5G eventually morphs into Wi-Fi. So um, like in your house that you've got Wi-Fi, as long as you're within the range of it, uh, you can do everything that you can do at 100 or 200 megs per second, whatever that case may be. But if you are out at 2G, then you're looking at, you know, one meg per second as opposed to 100 megs per second. So, so that's really in broad terms, and I'm trying to explain something really technical in a, in a short space of time. But 
that's how you go from 2G all the way through to 5G and then Wi-Fi, obviously, as you know. But you, you can't have driverless cars um, if you don't have 5G, for example. But in, I guess in simple terms, though, the, the, the key turnaround is there that you're now piggybacking off other people's infrastructure. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we had 6,000 towers that we were leasing. It was costing us uh, 7 billion rand in, in debt um, and, you know, close to, what, 700 million a year in, in, in uh, lease rentals. I said I'd rather give that money to one of the other infrastructure providers so that we shut down our radio access network. Sorry, I, f- I forgot to answer your question, uh, the difference between MNO and MVNO. We've got um, in our network 21 MVNOs, including First National Bank, who are rated the one, number one cell phone provider. Um, you know, that's, that just talks to how you can carve up your network and capacity on your network. We're talking to others. Virgin sits, sits on our network. Standard Bank is on ours. And effectively, effectively what an MVNO does is they don't own the spectrum. So they don't have a core. They don't have a, a core system that runs the network. They outsource that to us. And we then make sure that that, that customer is identified as a Standard Bank customer or whichever MVNO it is. And that's the difference between an MVNO and an MNO. But in our case, the fact that we are roaming our radio access network doesn't make us an MVNO. All it does is we still have our own spectrum. We're still subject to ICASA. But what we are able to do is carve up that spectrum and monetize it in the best way possible. All we've done is we've gone from a CapEx heavy model to a CapEx light model and an OPEX heavy model. And we may need to make sure that for the capacity that we buy, we're able to monetize that as quickly as possible and focus on profitable growth. Mm. It feels very much, you know, in a, in a similar way where you get the advantages of, let's say, an Airbnb or, a, or an Uber in the sense that you're providing a, a service to a market without those costs of having to actually own those assets. More and more. Companies. Yeah, I, I think, you know, where, where telco is as an industry is going to morph into something that's more customer centric because, um, you know, it, it's buying, um, you know, whether it's the fiber to your home or buying a cell phone contract it starts to become really difficult because it's becoming a grudge purchase. You expect to take it for granted these days. And the, the shift that's happening is now you're putting the customer at the center of everything that you do and you listen to the customer. It's not you come to the, you go to a shop and you want to buy this contract or that contract. You know, it, it, I find it still bizarre that people have to buy a contract and pay off their handset over 24 months. It's just mm-hmm. ridiculous. You don't do that with your TV uh, and you don't change your TV every two years, right? So I think that model is going to change over time because I think where technology is going with phones is you're going to find that people are going to keep their phones longer. They don't want to pay their phones off over 24 months. It's effectively a finance contract that you've got. So I think that the model for for telco must change uh, to be more customer centric. Yeah, which I guess also would mean that you think the prices are going to come down. I mean, I guess the, the 24 month contract was really something that Apple pioneered with the original iPhones. It was their their unique differentiator from, from Microsoft where the handsets were incredibly expensive. How could they go and offer these um, smartphones in a way which people could afford? Well, let's go and do a deal with AT&T to offer a financing scheme. So let's hope that the phone prices come down. What about the data costs? What's your kind of um, feeling about where we're heading over the next year or two? Because companies like Rain have started to push, to push down, at least if you're in a metropolitan area and you can get access to their network. 
we've started to see the regulators pushing for the industry to move prices down. Do you think we're going to go and see this trend continue? Is it going to be significant? I think that um, part of the problem here is if you look at a 750 rand a month contract, out of the 750 rand, um, probably 650 to 700 rand goes to the equipment supplier. The rest is telco. Okay, so the slice of the pie that the telco is getting is much less than the handset manufacturer. So I think that's the first thing to understand is that this is skewed very much towards the handset manufacturer. So, you know, you want the latest Samsung or Apple or whichever phone. A lot of your payment per month is towards that handset. I think that's the first issue. Second issue is that the industry is not growing revenue. So your revenue at an industry level is flat. We've got more SIM cards than we have customers in the market. So effectively, you've got multi-SIMed um, uh, customers and people have multi-devices. So, you know, I've got an iPad, I've got two cell phones, I've got a fiber to the home and, and so on and so forth. And then all my kids have phones and they have the latest and the greatest and, and, and so on and so forth. So you've got a lot of inefficiency that sits in the system and a lot of it is driven by a handset, okay? But... Now you, you take that 50 bucks or 100 bucks that you're making off a customer on a postpaid basis and you say, well, out of that 100 bucks, I've got to provide 60% more data volumes every year. And in order to do that, I've got to build a fancy network to be able to do that while my revenue is flat. So it just, it's just not a sustainable model to have four telcos all having the same kind of business model and fighting for the same share of wallet and where South Africa is now, if you look at disposable income, that's going to be even more difficult in the next year or two. So, so how do you do that? And we said early on that that's not a game that we want to play. And unless you're adding value to the customer, all you're doing is just fighting for that share of wallet. And, and, that's, and, and now you'll see a lot of the telcos providing what they call value-added services, which is financial services, uh, content, and the like. Uh, because, you know, you, you're going to make up your margin somewhere. But the margins that are being made on, on investing, as the industry does, just under $30 billion a year on flat revenue is not going to be sustainable in the future, in my view. Let's, let's do a quick pivot and um, go back to when you first started now. So, you know, we've talked about this yep. before. To, to manage this complexity, you had a couple of rules of thumb, or more than a couple of rules of thumb, that you, you tried to go and live by. Can we go through some of those? Because I think they're fascinating. No, oh, sure. With pleasure. Uh, I'm not sure they're fascinating. They seem pretty, pretty common sense. But as, as my CEO tells me, common sense is not all that common. So, <laughs> so let's give it a go. I think the first one is uh, purpose. I mean, uh, you and I talk a lot about purpose. I mean, Colin, you've, you're probably one of the champions of purpose in South Africa. So if you don't have a common understanding of, of what you're trying to get to, it's very, very difficult. And, and you need to set that purpose right up front because, you know, whether you C-seat executive, whether it's in your department, whatever it is, if you, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there, right? So I think just having a common understanding of what you're trying to achieve is really important and, and being able to revisit that on a regular basis. I think that probably would be the first major thing because setting that direction uh, and understanding that, you know, you might have, you know, tweaks to that is also important, but you've got to have kind of a broad view of where you want to go. Secondly, I think a lot of companies are in denial. They're in denial about the industry they operate in, uh, about the products that they sell to the customer, about the, the viability and sustainability of their business model, 
etc. And you, you've got to get past the denial stage really, really quickly. It's, it's a real disease in corporate South Africa where you've got companies that think that they can continue to operate, they've always operated, and not be disrupted by uh, you know, new entrants and, and, and the barriers to entry that they perceive to be in the industry. Uh, will hold them and hold their market share. And then, you know, at the same time, they continue to disrespect the customer. And, you know, when, when you work in, in big branded organizations, you realize that the customer is at the center of everything that you do. So I think that would be the second one is stop being in, in denial and speak to truth and, and speak truth to power because um, you'll find that there are a lot of denialists in, in boardrooms across South Africa. Third one is stakeholders. For me, rule of thumb is you're never alone in terms of what you're doing. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I'm blessed that I've got a fantastic team that I work with on a daily basis. Advisors, legal guys, uh, finance teams, uh, auditors, uh, banks. You know, I, uh, you know, banks get a bad rap, but trust me, when their money is at stake and you sit down with them, they will help you the best way you can. So you want to make sure that you, you're managing and actively managing all of your stakeholders. And the thing with stakeholder expectations is you've, they just want to know what the story is. They just want to know what is the situation, what are you doing about it, and, and, and how, can you, how can they help you? And I think typically what you'd want to do is, is go into a larger mentality where you don't tell anyone anything else. So the level of communication in your active stakeholder management is really important. And always, always speak the truth. I mean, what's that old saying? If you speak the truth, you never have to remember a lie. People just want honesty. And yeah, they're going to shoot the messenger, but after a while they get it. And, you know, for me, I think just being able to talk the truth and making sure that all stakeholders understand what the position is and what you're planning to do about it is, is, is important. The next one is you want to keep what you're doing very simple. You know, lots of companies come up with fancy strategies. They get the marketing guys in and they pre present these glossy stuff. It's, it's not that. You want to be able to talk to union. You want to be able to talk to frontline staff. You want your customers to understand what you're doing. You want your banks, everybody. And that messaging has to be really simple. In our case, it was simple. It was four pillars of, of our turnaround. And, you know, you've got to be able to explain that in, in 30 seconds. And, and it's, if it's not simple, then you're not going to be able to get your message across to the people that you need to. And particularly a company like ours that's been around for 20 years, it's, um, people understand it's, it's highly visible. Uh, they know the problems that have happened. And if you don't have simple messaging, it's going to be really difficult to convince people that what you're trying to do is going to achieve the aims that you set out to do in your purpose in the first place. Then the other one is, you know, typical accountants love to look at income statements. When you're doing a turnaround, income statement is not relevant. All that matters is cash and managing cash flow. I mean, um, last year towards June, um, you know, when we started this off, we formed a liquidity committee made up of uh, independent executive, non-executive directors of our board. And we sat down with them and, at one stage, we were doing daily liquidity calls. So in the morning at 8 o'clock, we'd have all the banks on a call agreeing what the liquidity position was, and we would have a liquidity committee meeting in the afternoon to update them. I mean, that's the level at which you, you go to. And if you don't know where your cash is, then you don't have a business. Profitability means nothing. And so we took a very tough decision in about June, July last year to default on our loans. But, you know, what the headlines say was that we defaulted. What the headlines don't say is that many trips to China, sitting down with banks, understanding and, and making them understand what we were trying to do, 
building a liquidity platform that would get us to a recapitalization, which is what we required. And so we had effectively an informal debt standstill. But again, like with the iceberg, what you saw was just the tip. The reality was the hard work that went into it from, from, from below, the, you know, from, from the ground up. And the, the other piece is you've got to have proper advisors. Um, I, I can't stress this enough. You, you can't do this on your own. You need people. You know, we, we appointed Deloitte UK early on. Um, they came in. Uh, we, we appointed Bowman's uh, as our legal advisors uh, to investigate how did we end up in the situation that we're in. Um, they were advising the board at the time because you want to protect people and, and particularly board members who are sitting on liquidity committees. They want to be sure that they're not reckless trading, for example. So you had to have the right advisors that come in and help you with that um, and guide your thinking and making sure that you're making the right decisions. And we did all of that. And eventually we agreed a recapitalization, um, but it took a lot of hard work. So our strategy was very simple. We had to focus on operational efficiencies in a business that for 20 years had made close to 30 billion rand of, of losses. We had to look at a new network strategy, which is, as I described, a new operating model for the company. We had to look at having a liquidity roadmap that would get us to a recapitalization and working with the lenders to do that uh, and all the other stakeholders, including auditors and the like, and having the proper financial advisors to, to do it. And then we had to agree a recapitalization which was doing a business plan based on the new business model that people could buy into. And that was credible. And that business plan wasn't double digit growth in revenue over five years. It was single, low single digit growth with, with, with proper cost cutting. And then we tracked ourselves against that because you, you got to build credibility in terms of your forecast. And that's our, as simple a strategy as it is. I mean, you, could you write a textbook on it? No, it's, Basic common sense management 101. It's not rocket science. It's not something that, you know, we could patent tomorrow as saying, this is the formula. We found the magic, you know, formula to do this stuff. It's not. It's any company would do something similar. So I think those are the kind of things that, that we, we did. Uh, as I said, it's, it's common sense. It's basic stuff, but it's, it's a lot of hard work. So you started Sorry, I've with spoken quite a bit, Colin. Uh, no, no, I'm, 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 <laughs> I don't know what everyone else is thinking. I'm, I'm just listening to these sort of, you know, eight points and then the three or four that you've mentioned from the strategy side of things. And you might see this as quite simple. It doesn't sound simple to me, and I'm sure there's a number of others. Well, I haven't you. finished yet. There's, I've still got a full list still to come. So the, <laughs> the next one is be ruthless in execution. Um, when you're in a turnaround, you, you can't be faffing around. Um, this is not the time to be trading on eggshells. You've got to be decisive and you've got to get things done quickly. And don't be afraid to make mistakes because you're going to make mistakes. Um, make sure that when you do it, when you do make mistakes, you, you do it quickly and fix it quickly. And then, yeah, I think that's kind of the, the last point in, in terms of what are the kind of things that I do uh, to, to do a turnaround. How, how do you stay um, stress-free or, or cheerful? Because ruthless drives to, to go and execute a clear push for removing inefficiency, no matter how you look at it, this is impacting negatively many people's you know, lives. We have to be honest about it. That must be incredibly stressful. How do you, how do you deal with that and the other issues that are popping up you know, when you're getting home? Yeah, you know, the thing is, and, and it talks to the point I made earlier, you, you're not in this alone. Um, you know, uh, I mean, my CEO is probably more stressed than I am. Um, and, and we lean on each other. I mean, we all have our bad days. And when I have a bad day, I pick up the phone to him and he cheers me up and he does the same. So we're a team. Um, 
and and the, the the nice thing about having a team is you can rely on people. So I've got a team of people, consultants, employees, the like, who I can lean on. You know, and and, and I don't do any of this by, by myself. So I can't profess to be taking credit for any of this stuff. There's a there's the the reflection of the work of the team below is is what uh, reflects on us at the top, and and we get the headlines, which is not really fair. And unfortunately, that's that's how it works. So. I think having a strong team around you is really, really important. Looking after your health is also very, very important. You know, maintaining an exercise regime, eating properly. Um, I, I make sure that I carve out enough time for my family uh, because my family really gives me a lot of energy uh, and, and rejuvenates me so that I get up the next morning and, and, and fight again. Um, so those I would think are, are really important. And then the last one is you've got to have people outside of the business that you can talk to. Um, that you can bounce things off, mentors, people that you've worked with in the past. I pick up the phone to, you know, my ex-CEO, Delorines, uh, Manu Mudley, a um, couple of other guys, Craig Solomon from McDonald's. You know, these are people, Stephen Kosofer sits on our investment committee. You know, often I'll phone him and just not shoot the breeze, but just tap him for all of his experience. And he's got this fantastic way to calm you down. Um, so whenever I'm feeling like that, uh, I pick up the phone. Brett Levy is another one. Um, you know, we have our battles, but he's also been really good and he's, he's the biggest optimist I know. So, yeah, you feed off the energy of others. And, and I think that's, that's important. You lean on your team a lot, which is fantastic. How do you keep the team motivated? How do you keep the other people around you that you rely on, you know, passionate about uh, coming in when the uh, future may or may be bleak in the way that they look at it? Yeah, so uh, does anybody remember Christian Bale? Christian Bale was Batman. He acted as Batman. I think he acted as the deputy president of the United States in one of the movies. Now, he's a method actor, right? And most of us on this call, we actors. We act the part, right? We pitch up and we're the CFO. You've got to act that part. You, you can't drop that facade, not for a bit. And if you're not into method acting, you're going to lose, okay? So what you want to be able to do is show up and do what you need to do. And sometimes inside you're unsure, you're not confident, whatever, but you never, ever drop the facade to your team in, in particular because they look to you for leadership. And when they see doubt in your eyes and they don't see purpose and they don't see confidence, then they drop as well. So no matter what's happening inside of you, keep that off the table. You deal with that in your own time. But in front of your team, you've got the answers, you're decisive, you make things happen. So I think, you know, that, that's the, the piece that's probably the hardest to do. When, when I'm in a board meeting, for example, and, and you've got to be decisive, you, sh you shouldn't be afraid to call what it is. Um, call it like you see it. Um, and the beauty in a turnaround situation is nobody's going to hold that against you because they're all feeling the same way. And you're just saying what everyone else is thinking. But yeah, you've got to be the CFO. Honesty as well. I mean, did you have people when you walked in because they, they can't have been used to this because it's a, it's a rare quality where you're able to go out and, and just be 100% honest. I know many people would like to be, but it's, from my experience in corporate environments, it's not often that case. Was that a difficult adjustment for people and are they happy with no. it now? No, it's, it's about managing expectations. People just want to know where they are. I, I think we, we as South Africans, we, 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 we're scared to offend uh, we worried about, you know, being offensive to other people and we try and, you know, couch it in terms that, that make sense. The reality is that 
People just want to know what the truth is. And in a, in a turnaround situation, particularly in a distressed asset, the truth is the only thing that's going to set you free. And I know that sounds cheesy, but the reality is, what else are you expecting? Um, you hired me to come in and fix things. Now I'm fixing it and you don't like what I'm doing or you don't like what I'm saying. And it's easy, as I said earlier, to, to blame the previous management team. But if you think, um, and, and, and this is also an issue, is if you think of just the problems, um, you'll never be solution oriented. What this country needs for, for the next five, 10 years, corporate South Africa, they need problem solvers and people who can connect dots. They don't need people to tell you what the problem is. We all know what the problem is. It's, you know it, I know it, we read the news, we all know so many people are dying from COVID-19, so many people are, are sick with it. This is what's gonna happen to tax collection. This is what's happening with, with debt, disposable income. We all know this stuff. It's easy to stand up and, and report that and be the weather guy. But unless you're changing the weather, then you're not very effective, I'm afraid. Mm. You started off by talking about purpose. You mentioned it a couple of times as well. Let's track back to that. Where, where are you on your journey for finding a purpose and, and one that's a bit deeper and more, more emotional than just simply having a drive or an objective to you know, rationalize and generate P&L? Yes, I think the, the one of the, it's, I've discovered that this is what I like doing and it's what gets me going um, on, a, on a personal level. And I'm assuming you're asking that question on a personal level, Colin. No, actually for Cell C, but we can, we oh, can for track back to that. We can finish on your, yeah, let, let's, yeah. let's hear what your personal purpose is. So my personal purpose is to make a difference. I mean, you get up in the morning and you show up and, and you do stuff because as an executive, uh, you want to be making a difference. And, you know, it's, you want to be outside of your comfort zone and, and be solution orientated. And, and that's for me purpose. And that's what I get up and do is to try and solve people's problems. Uh, that's my job. Uh, and there's an expectation that people have that, that I'm going to do that every day. So I think that for me is what gets me up. It, it energizes me. It, uh, I really enjoy it. Uh, my wife doesn't like it too much because I try and solve her problems and I'm shit at that. So, so much for that. But, but yeah, I think, you know, <laughs> I know. So, but, but from a company perspective, you know, we found our purpose early on, which is to change the operating model of our business. You know, you, you don't ever want to be in a position where you say, well, I should have, I could have, or whatever. And what makes this turnaround especially complex is that we're not only trying to fix the company, but we're also changing the operating model at the same time. And it's amazing. I mean, we sat down with MTN and, and immediately we understood each other and found each other in terms of what we wanted to do. And, and, and it fitted in with their strategy. So that purpose was sorted much, very much early on. And the numbers that attached to that meant that we were able to create a sustainable business, that we were then able to sell to the lenders and sit down with the banks and explain to them how they would recover at least some of their money. And if you don't have the purpose, then you can't do that, right? And so the business model was an outcome of the purpose that we had set in terms of what we wanted to do for the business. And the numbers then just made sense. If I had just you know, chucked a few numbers together and sat in front of a bank. They'd have picked it up immediately that, you know, that there's nothing that, that makes sense here. But because of what we were able to do at a strategic level, the numbers were just an outcome. In fact, we've beaten all of the numbers that we've put into our plan um, through, the through the end of last year and, in fact, year to date. So under promise and over deliver, um, that's what you've got to do. But if you don't know what your industry is doing or what your company stands for or how you're going to make a change to the, to the model, 
then your numbers really don't stack up to anything, I'm afraid. How are you balancing that? It's a kind of variation of a, a question from Ian Roy here. How are you balancing that with driving a more customer-centric type approach? Or are they one of the Yeah, things? no, I, I think the, the one thing that, and this is all about EQ, right? Um, you've got to have listening skills and, and empathy. And for too long, the South African customer has been treated badly. I mean, you know, just try and change a debit order or try and go and return a, a cell phone or, uh, because the watch you got that came with a cell phone or the earbuds or whatever it is, just try and do that. It is very, very difficult. I mean, it's almost borderline government style of, of you know, how to, how to not to treat a customer. I mean, you, if, you, if you treat a customer like that, um, they're not going to stay with you for, for much longer. You've got to be able to promise something and deliver that something to the customer. But it starts and ends with what does the customer want? You know, we are quite arrogant as telcos to say, we think that you need this phone with this package. Oh, and by the way, if that package doesn't suit you, well, here's five other packages to confuse the hell out of you. Do I need airtime? Do I need data? Do I need this? Do I need SMSs? What is an SMS? I'm using WhatsApp. Is an SMS even necessary? No, but we'll give you unlimited SMSs so that you don't use the unlimited SMSs. We just don't listen to the customer. And, and that could apply to any industry. If you put the customer at the center of everything you do, then they'll buy your stuff. Duh. It's just, you know, seems logical, right? But as I said, common sense is not all that common. How, how do you do that, though? Because every single person in the world knows this, and yet every single company, bar just a couple of percent, in general, in my experience, aren't particularly good when it comes to the customer experience. There is huge potential for incumbents to do huge amounts more. We could talk about the banking sector in South Africa and, and have a good grumble on that for a good couple of days. We could do it on telcos. We could pretty much do it on virtually anything especially anything that's, that's got a, a legacy infrastructure that's been providing it for years and years and years. Now, you know, you're, you're not as old as those guys, 2001, but it's, you know, how, how are you guys going to make that change? Because I find you can't make the answers. You can't find them inside the organization. So uh, I'll give you an example. I mean, I read in the newspaper, I don't know if it's even called a newspaper anymore, but anyway, there's no paper with it, but uh, that they're going to stop issuing checkbooks. This year, it's 2020 for God's sake. And we still have, I can't even believe that people were still issuing checkbooks. I mean, who still uses checkbooks? It's just bizarre. Um, Michael Judan, when he was at Standard Bank, uh, no, First National. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and he said, we're going to shut down branches. Okay. So what's the throughput of a branch, a typical branch in South Africa, uh, whichever bank? 200 customers, give or take, a day. You could do 2,000 customers online, okay? Instead of trying to do 200 per branch, okay? It just, it just doesn't make sense. The model doesn't fit it. But you try and shut down a branch. How, how do you do that strategically? Now, post-COVID-19, you realize, actually, I don't need branches anymore. Why? Why do I even need cell phone stores in all of these fancy shopping malls? What do I need it for? You know, what am I trying to do? You know, take the hospitality industry, and I worked there for two years. This thing of hygiene, pre-COVID-19, you were sleeping in a bed, touching the door and doing all of the stuff that every other smelly, stinky person did before you. You were fine with it. Now suddenly, when your life's at, at stake and in danger and you think you're going to die of COVID, what did you do? Now you've got to sterilize everything. You walk around with these spritzers and masks and all the rest of it. Now the hospitality industry is forced to deal with the real issue. In that, you, How did you treat your customer before? You never thought of that, did you? 
And then you as a customer, you never thought of it either. So I think, you know, those, cust- those companies that are thinking ahead of where the customer is and how to deal with what the customer needs will be, I think, more successful than the others. But you're right. Most of, of the companies don't see it that way. So Sorry, I was having a bit of a vent, uh, Colin. <laughs> I love it. But I'm just wondering um, if that means over the coming years, we can expect a much more digital internet focused cell C with really, um, you know, sort of attraction, very much like a, what would you say? I don't know, an Apple model or, um, you know, that disruption that we had in the music record and, and CD market where you're, you're going to start to come away. You've got your operating leases and it's going to be postal delivery, FedEx for the devices, SIM cards disappearing with the eSIM coming and so on. Is, is that roughly where you expect you guys to be going? No, and, and more, because remember, there's a whole bunch of stuff on content. I mean, Black, which was our content division, uh, was costing us $500 million a year. We thought we could own content. Uh, we put a stop to that really quickly. Um, you, you can't own content, not in this day and age. Uh, unless you're Amazon or Disney or, or Netflix, you know, as, as an individual company, owning content just doesn't work, right? So we'd rather work with all of those companies. So we, we, we're talking to Disney and Netflix and the like about how we distribute content to our customers. And how, how do we package that, you know, whether it's fiber to the home? You know, if you, if you take a, as a classical example today, if you're sitting with three kids, right, and one device, how do they all do their schoolwork? It's just, you know, we're not geared for this stuff. And, you know, if you look at the households in South Africa, um, there's only about 6 million households that are middle class. Where, where do the rest get their content from? Where do the rest get their devices from? And how do we as a, as a company deal with that? And how do we provide for that? And, and that's where the, 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 I think business is going to go is what do you provide as a tool for people to work from home? Because this is going to become the norm. I mean, I'm, I've been to the office, I think, three times in the last three months, as an example. And I'm sure everyone else on this call is thinking differently about how they do it. But if you don't have fiber to the home and you have an LTE device, that's going to chow data because you've got your child watching Peppa Pig or whatever it is. Um, they're going to chew through your, your data bundle. And so what we've seen is a spike in data volume growth but it still doesn't address the fact that you've got multi-devices uh, or you've got a problem where households don't have enough devices for the kids to be able to do their school or university or whatever it is. So that's just one example, right? We need to find ways that we satisfy a customer's need and solve a customer's problem. And that's where I think uh, we're going to go. So whether it's content, whether it's digital, whether it's digital engagement with the customer, uh, direct sales, whatever the case may be, uh, convenience and, and fulfilling a convenience need. That's, I think, where all companies are going to go. Mm. Well, all companies should go. Whether all companies well, do go in that direction, they might not be for much longer. Well, it won't be their choice, will it? Uh, good question here on a slightly different topic. I love this one, though. We'll do a, a couple of these questions. We've got about 12 minutes left uh, from Dumasani. Hi, Zafa. Is there a formula on how someone can become a critical thinker or problem solver? Please say there is, because I'd love to know how to do it. <laughs> yeah, there, there, is a, there is one. It's called Don't Believe Your Own Bullshit. You know, that, and, and by that I mean, and I'm not trying to be facetious, but I think critical thinking is uh, when you're outside of a comfort zone. And, and by that I mean, 
when you get up in the morning and you follow the same routine and you go to work and you are going to the same meetings and you're meeting the same people and then coming home and doing the same thing every day, it's like what, what the Americans call it groundhog day. Yeah. Right? Trust me, you're not going to get critical thinking if you do the same thing every day, all day. It's just bizarre, right? Unless you're meeting new people, challenging your way of thinking, listening to other people, um, speaking the truth, and calling it out for what it is and being yourself, you're not going to develop critical thinking skills, I don't think. So I think for me, every one of us has the capacity to think critically. But the way we behave on a day-to-day basis doesn't bring that out. Yeah, That's my just what, take what on lead, it. What leaders do to put people in positions to, to experience that uh, change of comfort zone or anything else so that they're, they're put in an environment to in, actually engage where they can hone their critical thinking skills. Cause a lot of the time it's a bit counterintuitive. You you're wanting to have your staff, you know, being productive and doing stuff. Now you're saying we've got to throw them into an environment which is going to be challenging for them. Well, Google does it. You have to spend one day outside of your job, right? And they, and they, they budget for that. Right. So, so they do it. I'll, I'll give you a specific example. I'm a director of Celsi. I'm also the CFO of Celsi. When I go to a board meeting and I'm sitting at that board, if I'm my functional role, I'm not doing my director's job. I'm sitting at that table because I'm a director of the company. I need to understand sales and marketing. I need to understand HR. I need to understand everything, operations, everything. I can't just sit there and say, well, I'm the finance guy. It's the sales guy's problem. It's not true. So if you want to discharge your director's responsibilities, you have to take a holistic view. You can't just take a finance view. So, the way teams operate is critical for this. And you've got to have, make sure that your guys cannot only think of themselves as finance people. When they're in a team, they are dealing on a holistic basis. And that's how you teach teams uh, and people that are functional in their role to think outside the box. Okay, another question. Uh, I like this one. This is short and sharp. When will we see data that doesn't expire? <laughs> well, data shouldn't expire. I mean, really. Absolutely. It's just, it's just uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. Look, I, I think it's actually an interesting question because I think the days of postpaid are going to be gone. And postpaid means what, you know, you buy a, a contract for two, 24 months and you buy the device with the airtime bundled. And typically the bundle is uh, airtime plus data plus SMS, right? And what you're finding is that OTT, you know, OTT players like WhatsApp and so on are just eating into that market because they make it possible. And we've been a pioneer of WhatsApp in South Africa because we believe that you should you leave it to the customer to choose. But I think the days of postpaid are going to be gone. And what you're going to find is people are going to bring their own devices to the networks and just buy airtime as and when they need it. Um, and that's going to be difficult. I mean, it's it's... You know, think of a life post, you know, without postpaid. When you buy a TV, you don't buy a fiber contract with it, do you? You buy a TV and then you buy the contract separately. So it's a prepaid market for every other digital device. Why should it be the case for your iPad or your cell phone? And I think that's where the world's going to go because cell phones, the devices themselves, I mean, how much more are they going to innovate? How many more cameras and megapixels do you actually need? How much more does your touchscreen need to be touched? or whatever they come up with latest. Well, the, the, the one thing that's going to be fascinating is where we start moving to a more realistic VR, AR world. Correct. And, you know, I, I, why would you spend, I mean, think about it, that device that you use and is connected to you permanently is a 15, 16,000 rand device. It costs more than your TV at all. Mm. I wouldn't see you carrying your TV around, but that's not the point, right? <laughs> but that's an exp- expensive piece of tech. 
But what's happening now is smartphone prices are coming down and you yeah. can't innovate enough to make the extra margin because you're coming up with something brand spanking new on your phone. I mean, when was the last big innovation on a phone? Yeah. Nothing. They just are made it bigger the, and better. The um, operating system upgrade from Apple later this year isn't that exciting. What's exciting about it? What's it going to do that you can't do now? Okay. I mean, yeah. can somebody, even on this call, tell me what a handset manufacturer, other than the last time they put out a, a phone with a camera that, that you had to replace your SLR thing, because, you know, the Huawei P30 can take night pictures of fantastic resolution, etc. Do you really need that? Do you, how much of that do you use per day? Yeah. Okay, so the touchscreen has gotten better, but it's still a touchscreen. It's just better. Your camera is better. Well, let's, uh, if anyone can answer that, do chat back. We haven't quite got time for them to be uh, pulled in, but we've only got, what now, just a couple of minutes, and then, then we're going to be drawing, drawing down. Your comments on, ah, oh, there's so many questions. Which one should we do? Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. COVID-19, I guess we have to now ask about this. Can you tell, and it might sound very, I don't know if the wording is going to be appreciated by everyone. I do apologize. I don't want to offend. But can you talk about the positives um, that you found in Celsius because of COVID-19? Yeah, I think, look, uh, COVID-19 is a terrible, terrible thing. Um, but if, if you're a business, one of your primary purpose or objectives, what do you want to call it, is you've got to find an opportunity in the problem. So whether you're making face masks or, uh, you know, and, and, and that's what entrepreneurs do, right? Selling uh, temperature gauges or uh, gloves or hand sanitizers, whatever the case may be, there's always people who find opportunity in the problem. And they're the ones that understand what entrepreneurship really is. So what COVID has, has taught us is that, no, you don't need a checkbook. No, you don't need to go to a bank branch. No, you don't need to go to a physical store to get a, a device. You can use take a lot. You can get your stuff delivered from Willie's. You can do stuff sitting in your house. And it's fundamentally changed how people think about work. Before COVID-19, if I wasn't sitting in my office, clocking in at 8 o'clock in the morning and leaving at 6 p.m., people wondered what the hell. Now I'm more productive sitting at home. So people are changing how they think about things. Now when you send an email, if you don't get an answer in an hour, you pick up the phone to say, why haven't you looked at my email? In an office environment, it was easy for people to manage upwards. Because somebody will walk into your office, I've got this problem. So instead of you as the CFO saying to them, well, it's your problem, best you come here back here with a solution. Now, in a COVID environment, you cannot do the passing the monkey to your boss anymore. And now you start to ask the question, well, what value do you really add as an employee to an organization? And it's easy to be found out in this environment. So I think if you start to think like that and say, well, as a company, how do we provide the tools for people to be more productive? Because if you want to fix South Africa's problems, you fix it with productivity, whether it's government, whether it's corporates. And you look at all of the inefficiencies that exist in our, in our society and the costs that come with that. And if you start to think about how you can eliminate that and make it more suitable to customer needs, then I think you're going to monetize that and, and make money out of it. And I think that's where the opportunity lies. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I've just asked Simon just to uh, join us. So, oh, it works. Technology is actually uh, working there. Simon, well done, Colin. welcome to the discussion. I'll hand over to you. I don't know if you've got a question for uh, Zaf as well, as you've been listening. Yeah, hi, Colin, and uh, welcome to all of you, our customers. Just a, a major word of thanks from 
Ayoko to our clients for joining us today. Uh, we hope you found uh, some learning, learning uh, some comfort and some inspiration in, in Zaf's words. Certainly for us, Zaf, it's, it's just an incredible story of courage and, and resilience. And, uh, and you bring it across with such calm. You know, some of the things that uh, you speak of, like liquidity, cash focus, creating and building credibility and trust, it's just a journey we've, uh, we've been on as, as, as your age. Um, and as you start to come through, you really uh, reap the benefit. And, and so much of the story you've told is, is one we've been through. So it really resonates. And we appreciate you sharing with such candor and, and giving us such a, a warm view of the journey you've been through. Our days are so full uh, in, in COVID times. Uh, and I think a lot of the things you've touched on today, we don't take breaks and, and make time to think. And we really hope these sessions and the time... Uh, you know, that Zaf and Colin have, have set aside, catalyzes some of that stretch, some of the thinking, some of the opening of the mind, and, and creates a, a break in the days that seem to start, you know, sometimes at 6 a.m. and run through uh, into the evenings. So, so we hope you've enjoyed the time. Uh, next week, we have the amazing uh, Snea Shah uh, from New York. Uh, she's the MD of, of Refinitiv's Business Accelerator. She's responsible for creating, investing in, and scaling new high-growth businesses for Refinitiv globally. She's based in New York. She's joining us, and uh, we're really looking forward to that as a follow-on, the third in this IOKA Inspire series for clients. Just a, a big shout-out to some of the clients on the call today. Uh, firstly, to Salsi, because they're here with us, whether they liked it or not. To Volkswagen South Africa, Sassol, Stanabank Group, Distel, Alexander Forbes, Department of Home Affairs, our clients at AB InBev, Trans, Transnet, Nampak, um, to name but a few. If I've left you off, Sunlam, uh, welcome to you too. Uh, just really appreciate you making the time and we hope you found the session to be of value. Uh, you know, at IOCO, we've spoken a lot about purpose on the call today. We see our purpose is to solve. We've got such a wide array our CEO, Stephen Van Koller, speaks about our Lego box. You know, that's such an incredible array of Lego. Uh, we really are equipped in, in good times and in tough times like we are at the moment to help our clients solve, and that's the essence of our purpose. And I just wanted to encourage you uh, to reach out to us if there's any business problem, and I, and I emphasize the business problem. You know, we're a technology solutions company, but we really transformed to a place where we were looking at the challenges uh, like the one Zaf has uh, outlined on the call, call today. But reach out to us. We're there to create the think tanks. We may even bring Colin with us if you're, uh, if you're lucky, but really to think creatively about those problems and see what we can do uh, to help you solve. Our IOCO Connect, uh, CIO Connect also coming up in the next week or so. So look out for, for, for that, uh, but we really appreciate you joining us today, and I'll hand back to Colin. Thanks once again, Zaf. Great, uh, great hearing from you today. Thank uh, you, thank and you it's uh, good being an EOH client. Sorry, I interrupted there. Say that again, Zaf. Yeah, it's good to be an EOH customer. Uh, EOH are doing the right things, and, and we salute you guys for all the work that you're doing. Uh, we see it, and we respect it. Saf, on behalf of everyone, thank you very much for joining. I've, I've been writing down, if people were wondering what I was looking at, avidly, all of those points. I've just had this idea. Maybe we should do a book. Yeah, Colin, why not? <laughs> 
if everyone on the uh, call wants Zaf to be uh, pushed to write a book, uh, you, you're welcome to message back. I think there is uh, already 10 or 13 or so chapters there that we can start scripting out. Thank you very much, and uh, hopefully we'll see you all next week. By the way, Sneha's awesome. Thank you, darling. You are going to be blown away by her story and her journey. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Colin. Thank you.